Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. <clears throat> Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Chapter one, The Riddle House. The villagers of Little Hangleton still called it the Riddle House, even though it had been many years since the Riddle family had lived there. It stood on a hill overlooking the village, some of its windows boarded. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is season four of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Yahoo! So, friends, we're so glad you're all back. We're glad to be back in the studio as we embark on Goblet of Fire, my favorite book. And as we get underway, we have learned so much from all of you in your descriptions of the show to your friends and family and your comments and reviews on iTunes, how to talk about the show. Because I think when we got started, you know, it was still new for us. And so we've written a new description that's up on Facebook and our website and iTunes. And we thought we'd read it for you both as just a thank you for the way that you've helped us understand what we're doing and maybe something that you could use, you know, as you describe it to friends and family as we hope the podcast will continue to grow. So here it is. It's the English class you didn't know you missed and the meaningful conversations you didn't know you craved. Join Vanessa Zoltan and Casper Takile. That's us. That's us, yay. As they bring thought, reflection, and laughter to Harry Potter, not just as novels, but as instructive and inspirational texts that will teach us about our own lives. Relive the magic chapter by chapter as they explore themes such as commitment, revenge, and forgiveness. This podcast creates time in your week to think about life's big questions. Because reading fiction doesn't just help us escape the world, it helps us to live in it. Ariana wrote that last line. Isn't it good? It's so good. Everybody's that. like, the new description is great. The last line, and I'm like, I know. <laughs> yeah, it was Ariana. <laughs> the rest of it, I feel like all of us co-authored, but that line Ariana wrote just by herself. <laughs> and for those of you who'd like to meet the famous Ariana, you should come out to one of our two live shows this fall. We are in Boston at the Somerville Armory on Wednesday, the 18th of October. The show is starting at 7 p.m., and we're doing this in partnership with Combined Jewish Philanthropies. So tickets are only 10 bucks, And they are selling really fast. So if you want to come, buy your ticket today, harrypottersacredtext.com, and we'll see you then. And then we also have a show in Atlanta, Georgia, on November 8th. It's also a Wednesday night, and it starts at 7.30 p.m. at Park Avenue Baptist Church. And you can go online to our website and buy tickets there. Ooh, and should we say, we don't know yet exactly what chapter we're doing for Atlanta, but for our Boston show, we are going old school. We are doing book one, chapter one. And because it's going to be just after the Jewish New Year, we are going to do it through the theme of beginnings. I'm so excited for that. Me too. 
But Casper, before we talk about beginnings, let's talk about chapter one of Goblet of Fire through the theme of instinct. And you have a story for us this week. I do. I do. When I was 21, I co-founded a climate activist organization with my friend Emma. And it was the most heady and amazing experience. You know, we were mobilizing young people around the UN climate negotiations, and we built these deep, intense friendships with climate activists all over the world. And I really felt like I was changing the world. And I loved it. But over time, as we learned more about the difficulties of policy change and how change really happens and how power works, and I think perhaps some of our naivete kind of got lost, I became more and more disillusioned with what we were doing. And I think I just stopped believing in the strategy that we had chosen. And it was a really bewildering process because I was in this leadership role, but I suddenly felt like I couldn't really lead with integrity. And I didn't know how to talk about it with my colleagues and the people we were trying to inspire. And so I just started not sharing my feelings so much. I, I was not putting my heart in in the same way. And our friends and colleagues picked up on it and asked me, you know, what's going on? Or like, are you feeling okay? And as I didn't say anything, that kind of grew into resentment and frustration because we were all supposed to be dedicated to this cause. And here I was not showing up in the way that they were used to. Anyway, it got so bad that at one point we organized a meeting and all sat down in a circle in this office. And it was one of the most important experiences for me because Basically, we opened space for everyone to say how frustrated they were with me. And then I finally had some space to say what I really felt. And like, I didn't really believe in this project anymore. And it was very painful. But what I took away from it was that I had been hiding because I, I didn't want to hurt people and I wasn't sure how to express it. And I just thought it's easier if I like just drift away slowly or find an exit route, but not really engage the hard conversation. But Instinctually, everyone knew what was going on, but because it wasn't said out loud, it just festered and became destructive. And that instinctual sense of what someone else is feeling, even if they're not saying it, is such a powerful thing. So I'm really interested in this idea of instinct, because there's a way in which you can pick up on other people's state of being without much communication. And often it's about what they're not doing. And it shows up in so many interesting ways in this chapter, right? Frank instinctually knows something is happening in the house in the middle of the night while he's sleeping. So I'm just really interested in how instinct shows up in our communication, our relationships, whether we can always trust it. That's what I want to talk about in chapter one. Yeah, Casper, I think that those are exactly the right questions about instinct. I'm, I feel like people will ask me in tough situations, like, well, what is your gut telling you? Mm -hmm. And I find that I often don't know what my gut is telling me. Or it's only in hindsight that I'm like, oh, I feel like on some level I knew that. But it's so hard to be able to tell what's our gut and what is our insecurity and what is our fear and what is just gossip. And I feel like this chapter really demonstrates the difference between real instinct and other voices getting in our head and outside forces sort of influencing us. So I'm excited to talk about exactly that after you do your 30-second recap. Oh, yes. You know, I'm still on a high from, like, winning in book three. I'm just saying. I know. Every night at midnight in the middle of Harvard Yard, he streaks yelling, I am the champion. And people don't know what he's talking about. And every night when I hear it, I'm like, I do. Um, I'm ready to time you. The new contest is up online. Everybody Great. vote for me. On your mark, get set, 
Go. Okay, so we open with um, Frank, who's the gardener of this place, and everyone thought he was a murderer because the Riddle parents were gone, and um, well, they were killed. And but the doctors were like, oh, "How did they die? No one knows. Maybe they were scared to death." And um, uh, anyway, t- uh, Tom Riddle, b- b- bye. And uh, many years, he's still there. He lives alone. It's scary, dark. Uh, he thinks boys are broken in, but then no, because Wormtail and Voldemort are there, and Voldemort's like a little scary man. And Nagini hears him outside and brings him in, and wh- and they kill him. And Wormtail's like, "Why, both the Jerkins? Ah!" And then Voldemort's still live drinking milk from the guinea's breasts. <laughs> so you went over. Okay. But you got to the essential part of the chapter, <laughs> which is... I just, you know, I don't know if that's the correct anatomical term on a snake. But, like, lactation happens, and we should talk about that. <laughs> Vanessa, you ready for your 30 seconds? Yeah, you did really well, though. I'm not sure. I feel like there's actually plenty. You got Bertha Jorkins in there at the end. I did. I did. All right, 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So the Riddle House has been abandoned for a long time because there was this creepy, like, triple homicide that they never solved. But the rumor was that um, that Frank committed it and the cook was like, I always knew he was bad. And then now the Riddle House is occupied again and it's by Voldemort and Wormtail. And um, Frank hears it. And so he's overhearing this whole conversation and they're talking about how they killed this woman named Bertha Jorkins and they want to kill this guy, Harry Potter. And Frank is like, what? And they're like, we're going to kill you. And then Harry Potter wakes up because his scar hurts. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. Everybody should go online and vote. Yeah. For me. Casper. Vanessa, I want to start with a character that's new to us, Frank the Gardener, who, you know, wakes up in the middle of the night because his leg is really hurting him and he he goes to the sink to fill his hot water bottle and he sees that there are lights flickering in the main house. And Frank is a gardener. Like, he is not hired in any way to protect this building, at least not that we know of. But yet his instinct is to go into the house and check out what the problem is. He thinks it's some boys, local boys who've been there before causing some trouble. Even that, I'd be like, wait until the morning. There's no need to do this now. You're not in the best of health. And he doesn't trust the police, right? So we understand that his instinct is to solve this on his own. But that decision gets him killed. And so I'm challenged by the idea of our instinct to do good can get us into real trouble way more than we think we're stepping into. Yeah. And but I also think that your point gets to the heart of what is instinct, because I think part of why Frank goes into that house is because for the last however many years, he's been all but tortured by this town. He's been ostracized for a short term rumor that he committed a murder that he absolutely did not commit. And because of that, he's been tortured by young boys for like decades. So I think there's an argument to be made that it's his instinct that gets him into that house. But I also think that there's an argument to be made that it is actually the like decades of violence that has been done upon him that gets him to that house. He gets woken by his throbbing leg, which hurts because of an injury in the war. And then there's like this other injury of this town turning on him. And then there's this like constant violence and accosting of his space and of his body. Kids are throwing things at him throughout his life. And so I wonder if this is him later in life taking a stand and saying like, I am tired of this violence being done onto me. I am just wondering if we call that instinct. That is a really interesting point, especially the idea of his military training showing up here. And 
This reminds me of, you know, there was all sorts of interesting data about how soldiers in the First World War acted on the front lines of battle. And the exact statistic eludes me, but it was an incredibly high percentage of shots that were fired by soldiers on purpose to miss, that they didn't actually have the kind of killer instinct, like they didn't want to shoot to kill and so the training for soldiers changed drastically after the First World War. And target practice became not a kind of circle with a bullseye, but became the shape of a man, became the shape of an enemy combatant. So that the instincts of mercy and justice were really pushed out, they were crowded out by the instinct to fire to kill, which makes for an effective soldier in a war, right? That is unmistakable. But this idea of our instincts can be trained, I think, is really interesting because my sense in that moment, Frank at the kitchen counter looking out of the window, it's not a rational process. But I think you're right that he feels under threat. And maybe it's it's the window up there tonight, but tomorrow night they're going to attack me here in my house. So I need to fight back right now. That does strike me as possible. And just how our instincts change over time, right? And I don't know if Frank in his old age is like, do you know what? I'm done being harassed. Like, what have I got to lose anymore? I think that as we're in different phases of our lives and we have different responsibilities, we take different risks. And it's these like instantaneous moments. It's not like we're sitting there doing a pro-con list of like, well, I'm 67 right. years old now. Right. And so if I die, you know, the garden will go to hell, but whatever. And I think that's exactly what happens when he's waiting outside the room. Like he overhears Wormtail and Voldemort talking about killing this boy, Harry Potter. And he's terrified standing out there and his palms are sweaty. But once he's in there, he's gung-ho. He's like, you're planning a murder. That's not right. I'm going to the police. And he has this courage that comes out of nowhere. And I think you're so right. It could change so massively if he had young children at home, if he had a partner sleeping in the gardener's house. But I think at this point, he's like, listen, I think I'm going to die. Let me speak truth before it all ends. And you see him change in this moment because he hasn't trusted the police for decades, but he's like, OK, I'm going to go call the police. And so I think that What's so amazing about this scene to me is how we see people's thought processes change on getting new information so quickly. Right. And I think that that's true, that like our brains are like these computers that are like, wait, what? What's happening now? This? Oh, OK. And it's like ch -ch -ch, things line up and we make the best decisions that we can given the information that we have. Well, this is a really interesting point where, you know, there's kind of three centers of knowing our head, our heart and our gut. And I think in some ways, some of us are better at listening to some of those senses than others. Like, it's a rare person who has a real balance of all three. So I just think that's really interesting how we choose what to do based on instinct, on reason, and on emotion. Yeah, and I think we really see that with the mob mentality that gets represented at the beginning of this chapter. In the pub, when suddenly all the villagers kind of turn on Frank, you know, one says, always thought he was odd. She told the eagerly listening villagers after her fourth sherry, which I think is important that this is after her fourth sherry, right? Her brain function has slowed down. She says things like unfriendly, like I'm sure if I've offered him a cup of once, I've offered it a hundred times, never wanted to mix, he didn't, which is a totally innocent thing. He might not like tea. 
tea, right? You might not like tea. Also, it sounds like he's a World War I veteran. And we know that the term at the time was shell shock, right? But a lot of British soldiers came back incredibly shell shocked from World War I. Absolutely. And so he's like keeping to himself and gardening. And that's why I'm interested about going with our gut and instincts because I feel like often we can look back and be like, oh, I knew that all along. He was always weird. When really I feel like there's something more insidious at play. When we're scared, we try to fill in holes with just like the lowest common denominator of option. And it's fair that they're scared, right? There's like a reason to be afraid. But the fact that it just becomes this insidious conspiracy theory mob mentality. And we, you know, we see this all the time throughout history. Like, scary things are happening, so burn the witches. Scary things are happening, so put all the Japanese people in an internment camp. Like, whenever we're scared, we act out of the gut of fear, and our instinct to be afraid is a reasonable and rational instinct, but it leads us to completely unreasonable actions and we justify them for things that aren't actually about our instincts. And so I think that that's what always scares me about, quote unquote, going with my gut is I'm like, okay, my gut tells me to be afraid, but I am really bad at discerning as to whether my gut is telling me to be afraid for something that's about me or if my antenna are going up in a productive way. A hundred percent. I completely agree with that, especially when we think about the bigger fear of not knowing. What happens here is that the town turns on Frank because it makes sense of this mystery. And like, if there wasn't a solution, it's a much more frightening prospect. Is there still a murderer in our midst? How did these people die? It doesn't make rational sense. I'm going to change the story so that it fits within the world that I experience. I mean, the sentence, it's so creepy, right? I mean, this is just so beautifully written. The riddles all appear to be in perfect health, apart from the fact that they were all dead. I mean, imagine hearing that as a townsperson, right? Like, I can be taking my medicine, being perfectly healthy, being a good member of society, and then randomly my entire family can just die. Of course I would want to blame someone. And who gets blamed? The person who's already marginalized and weaker and isolated in the community. That's the tragedy here. Yeah. Vanessa, on this theme of instinct, where else do you see it in this chapter? I mean, Voldemort's instincts are incredible. And I mean, I understand that he is like this great wizard, but I'm wondering what his instincts can teach us about instinct in general. And I will say that I am interested in his relationship with Nagini because I have a dog and I do, to a large extent, trust her instincts. It's like an externalized set of antenna. And Nagini seems like a very useful version of that. So it feels like Voldemort has kind of two instinctual pieces here. One is through Nagini, where he has this kind of extra outer body sensing capacity. And the communication that he has with Nagini is through the language connection. But it feels like more than that as well. And that makes sense, knowing what we know about the Horcrux connection with Nagini. But then the second one is just his own ability with Wormtail to sense lies. 
And I wonder, you know, partly this is a, a just a question of Voldemort's power. You know, does he have this power of occlumency? Is he able to read Wormtail's thoughts, which would be less about instinct and more about skill? Or does he just sense Wormtail's lies? And I think that is something that all of us have to some extent when we can just pick up that someone, you know, might not be a total falsehood, but it's an incomplete truth. And that's about reading body language. It's about listening to the tone of voice. But none of those kind of sense-making things are rational. We just get a feeling that something isn't right. But I do think that instinct can become a skill over time. You know, as you become better friends with someone, you can, like, tell when they're withholding something. It's gotten to the point with Kim where if she calls me at a certain time of day, I know it's a certain kind of thing. That is an instinct that I have, but that's built over 20 years of long-distance friendship. But I think that, yeah, between Voldemort's relationship with Nagini and his relationship with Wormtail, he knows what everybody is thinking. But I think that there are different instincts at play. There seems to be like a biological instinct at play with Nagini. And then with Wormtail, it's very unclear as to whether it's a magical instinct or if it's just like an instinct that we all have when like someone's not being truthful with you. The biological instinct idea, I think, is really interesting because right now Voldemort has returned to this kind of infant-like state. He, you know, needs constant care. He can't move things himself. He needs feeding on milk. He's surviving in a way that an infant with a mother kind of do. And so the fact that that instinctual relationship also exists in terms of information being shared actually really makes sense between Nagini and Voldemort. Absolutely. I feel like children and mothers, their instinctual ability to relate to one another, first of all, often doesn't come. A lot of mothers will be very upset being like, I can't read my children's thoughts. And it's like, that is completely normal. But also it breaks as the kid gets older, right? And like starts keeping secrets. And we do that for all sorts of reasons. But Nagini and Voldemort, they stay in touch. The love stayed true. Oh my God, those two. They have a secret language, right? Like that's another cute thing that you'd see with parents and kids. Yeah, or like twins, right? Oh yeah. Like we're twinning. Happening. Did you ever speak pig Latin? <laughs> S-K. <laughs> it was aimle. Agini nay. Oring bay. So, Casper, now it's time for our first spiritual practice of season four. And, you know, I thought we would try something a little different and do this thing called Lectio Divina. You know, it's new to me. Yeah. Well, don't worry. I'll teach you. (laughs) So, as our listeners know, this is one of our favorite practices. It's the one that we started with. And it is a four-step reading practice in which we will guide you through the process as we go. But the first thing that we do, even sort of before we start the practice, is we pick a sentence randomly. And part of the reason that we do this is just to show that anything Mm. that we pick from this text can be treated as sacred and can have amazing lessons gleaned from it. And so close your eyes, put your finger somewhere, and tell me what we will be treating as sacred from chapter one. Okay. There came the chink of a bottle being put down upon some hard surface, and then the dull scraping noise of a heavy chair being dragged across the floor. Let me read it again. There came the chink of a bottle being put down upon some hard surface, and then the dull scraping noise of a heavy chair being dragged across the floor. It's chink in the 
British one? Oh, what's the American it's version? It's Clink. <gasps> That's so funny. Yeah. So step one of Lectio, you just tell us, Casper, what is literally happening in the story at this point? Well, so Frank the gardener has gone inside the house and is now standing outside the room where Voldemort and Peter are talking. And he's trying to figure out, you know, he thinks it's these boys who've broken into the building and like what's actually going on. So he's kind of surprised to find the kind of moving of furniture. And it doesn't sound like what he thinks was going on. When you just explained it like that, it's the first time that I realized that this is like a horror scene. Oh, totally. You're like, don't go inside yes. the house. It's like, you're an old man. Like, go home. Yeah. But to be honest, that's what I've always experienced this chapter to be. It's such a break from the whole previous three books. Oh, absolutely. But perfect. A plus. Good work. Thank you. <laughs> so now that you have oriented us in the text, step two is what is allegorically going on in the text? What words speak to us? What else do we think is going on? So I'm going to read the sentence one more time from the American version this yes. time. There came the clink of a bottle being put down upon some hard surface and then the dull scraping noise of a heavy chair being dragged across the floor. This is interesting. The connection in my mind was really about sobriety and um, the idea of like putting a bottle down, but also the idea of like a dull scraping of a heavy thing across the floor. It feels like you're dragging part of yourself that feels like it's burdening you and it's dragging you down in some way. And just that idea of living with an addiction, I don't know, that struck me in this way of feeling like you're being pulled against your own best will. How about you? What did you see? I'm so embarrassed by what came to mind. But I'm reminded of like the scene in the James Bond movie, Casino Royale. Love that movie. Me too. When Mads Mikkelsen is about to like torture Daniel Craig and he takes a chair and he just like drags it very slowly across the floor. And it, in the movie, at least, it shows like I have all the power. So I have all the time in the world to just let you sit there and suffer. And that's what it made me think of. And but that's interesting because the way we read the chapter is that Voldemort learns from Nagini that Frank is outside. But maybe if we read it through the Casino Royale frame. Which like, we should. Which we should. There's a kind of hint that Voldemort already senses Frank's presence and is kind of teasing him a little. Yes. And also, if we're doing the Casino Royale reading, it shows like they are not afraid of getting caught. Yeah. It's like Wormtail's just sort of slowly dragging this chair to be closer to the fire. They've lit a fire. They are putting light in a house that should be unoccupied. And so I think it does show similarly to the villain in the James Bond movie that, like, Voldemort is like, catch me. I'll just kill you if you do. He's not exactly behaving like someone who's trying to stealthily be on the run if they're lighting fires and slowly dragging chairs, right? Yeah, there's kind of a showiness to all of this. I hadn't seen that before. So stage three of Lectio, Casper, will you read us from the British version once more? Yes. There came the chink of a bottle being put down upon some hard surface and then the dull scraping noise of a heavy chair being dragged across the floor. So step three, Casper, is when we reflect as to what the passage reminds us of in our own lives. For me, it reminds me of when I've had to be taken care of mm. and how terrible that is. I broke my ankle when I was 14 
you know, they're just like a few days after you get the cast put on where you're like, I literally can't even like get a stool for myself to prop my leg on and just like how terrible that feeling is, which I realize is leading me into dangerous territory of empathizing with Voldemort. But it's interesting what all of these years of like having to be taken care of by other people might have done to him, right? It's like, it's really hard to have to be taken care of. And a lot of people, I know a lot of our listeners have to spend a lot of their lives being taken care of physically by other people or as caretakers. And that changes you. And so I'm wondering how that changes Voldemort. I don't think we know, but it's something that he's experiencing for a really long time. What about you, Casper? What does it remind you of in your life? Vanessa, the thing that struck out at me is the dull scraping noise that Frank can hear. And, you know, at that point, he doesn't know that it's a chair being moved across the room. And as you know, we live in dorms and we have wonderful 18-year-olds who live near us. And that means sometimes we can hear noises through the wall. And I'm actually right next to the boys' bathroom. And for the first, like, three months that we lived there, we just kept hearing this noise at, like, all hours of the day and night that just went, and I had no idea what was going on. And it took me forever to realize that these were the hand dryers in the bathroom. And so, like, Sean and I were having a romantic dinner or, like, I'm reading quietly by candlelight. And, like, suddenly there's, like, and it's just... You know, noises that you don't know what they are can seem more frightening. And now that I know what it is, it's got a nice comforting hum to it. But I'm sure for Frank, he's like, what is that like sound that's coming from the next room? Yeah, I now am very attuned to the sound of whenever I hear a click, 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 click on a Friday night, it's beer pong. Oh, yeah. I was thinking heels on the corridor. No, it's like a very specific type of ping pong ball bouncing. (laughs) But I'm like, ah, someone's playing beer pong. Time to shut it down. (laughs) Time to shut that down. Step four of Lectio, Casper, is what has this process called us to? So what do you feel called to in your life after going through this process of Lectio with this sentence? But do you mind reading it for us one more time before we do that? Yeah. There came the chink of a bottle being put down upon some hard surface, and then the dull scraping noise of a heavy chair being dragged across the floor. Your step three really called me to finding noises like that comforting and sounds of home and, like, loving rather than grating. I share a a fire door, like a very thin piece of plywood with a young woman who likes to squeal with delight. And it annoys me very much. And instead, I can be like, okay, like, this is youth and, like, this is exuberance. And, like, it's a choice to how we can process some of those noises. And so that's what I feel called to. What about you? It's funny. I think I'm ending up with something around sound as well. I realize how much music I play or podcasts I listen to. And of course, I love both of those things. But there's hardly any silence in my day at all. Like even when I'm in the shower, I'm like listening to a podcast. And it means that I'm not having the time to think or process actually what's going on in my life. And I guess Frank probably has a lot of silence in his hut. But just this idea of the way that we engage the the noises that happen to us, there's like another layer of the noises we choose to listen to 
all the time. And, and I think maybe I just don't have enough silence in my day. So I, I want to take away that intention of just being a bit more careful about how much I'm just pressing play instead of just being with the silence around me. Thank you, Casper. That was a lovely lectio. Thanks, Vanessa. Today's voicemail is from Katie Kelly Hankin. Hi, Casper and Vanessa. My name is Katie Kelly Hankin, and I'm a teacher in Berkeley, California. I was really touched by the Florilegium you created in episode 18 on isolation. The quote was, even I don't understand. It was planted because I had come to Hogwarts. These sparklets really spoke to me and helped me think about a situation in my life in a new way. When I hear these sparklets, both of which are quotes from Lupin, what I hear Lupin saying is that he struggles to understand why so many people were motivated to help him attend Hogwarts as a child. It seems to me that he had come to view his chronic condition as something that made him unworthy of care from others. Furthermore, he feels guilty knowing that his very presence at Hogwarts is placing others at risk, not to mention his complicity in the risks his three best friends take by becoming unregistered animagi. This really resonates with me in my own life. For the past seven years, I've struggled with chronic anxiety and depression. I've been in therapy, I've been on medication, and while all of those things have helped, the thing that has helped most in the past year has been getting a sweet little pit bull puppy named Luna, love good, who is now my certified emotional support animal. But like the accommodations that had to be made for Lupin to attend Hogwarts, bringing Luna into my life was not simple. One of my beloved housemates, Monica, is very allergic to dogs. She agreed to try having a dog anyway, but it became quickly clear that this was placing her health in serious jeopardy. But just when it seemed like I would have to give Luna up for adoption and continue coping with my mental illness in other ways, my community came together in the most incredible way to creatively accommodate my needs. Two housemates began building a beautiful doghouse for Luna in our backyard. Three different friends kept Luna for extended periods of time so that the allergens could clear out of our house as we prepared the outdoor space for her to live in. And of course, my beloved roommate Monica agreed to take allergy medication and patiently waited for the dander to be cleared out of the house after Luna transitioned to living in her heated outdoor doghouse. <laughs> Our whole home was reshaped and reshuffled because I have anxiety. Just like Hogwarts was reshaped and reshuffled to make room for Lupin. Like Lupin, I often wonder what I did to deserve all of this abundant compassion. And I wonder if I'm being selfish or doing harm to those I love by accepting their offerings. But when I read these books, and I remember what an incredibly giving, compassionate, and loyal friend Lupin is, it's so clear to me why he was 100% deserving of all the care and accommodations that were extended to him at Hogwarts. It's my work to see myself as being just as deserving as Lupin. So this is a blessing for anybody who is sometimes isolated and struggles to feel worthy of the care, compassion, and accommodations you are offered. Lupin was worthy and deserving, and so am I, and so are you. Thanks so much, Katie. That is really beautiful, and I just want to echo that message. Yes. 
It's time for our first blessing of book four. And Vanessa, who are you giving yours to? So I would like to say a blessing over Bertha Jorkins. So we we really don't know much about who she was or what happened to her yet. There's a very sad line when they say Bertha Jorkins' disappearance will not go unnoticed for long. And while we know that that's true, that the ministry realizes that Bertha is missing, they, they justify it for a really long time, that she's like constantly getting lost. And when really she's one of the first deaths in this like resurgence war that Voldemort is waging. So I just want to say a blessing over the invisible victims of war. We think of the Battle of Hogwarts and as, you know, the war starting later, or we think of Cedric as the first death often when really it isn't even Frank who's the first death, Bertha is. And I feel like I forget that. And so as a reminder to myself that there are always invisible sufferings in the world, I want to offer this blessing for Bertha. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless this week? I want to offer my blessing to Frank. We've talked about how kind of his instinct might have been foolish, but I also, I can't help but admire his courage. The moment when he steps in, text tells us he felt braver. It had always been so in the war. And he lies. You know, he says like, oh, my wife knows I'm up here. And if I don't come back, you know, he's he's kind of inventing something to help him be brave. And for all the women at bars who have to say, well, my boyfriend's just gone to the bathroom or just anything that might help create safety or courage or, you know, sometimes those those lies really make a difference. So I feel like I can bless Frank for that. Casper, before we do our credits this week, we just have one announcement. Would you like to read it for us? Yeah, uh, our friends at the Harry Potter Alliance are running a great campaign called Without Hermione, which we just wanted to share with you. Imagine if young witches like Hermione had never made it to Hogwarts. No one would have saved Harry at the first Quidditch match or discovered the Basilisk or started Dumbledore's army. And in our world, girls are kept out of the classroom all the time. So join the Harry Potter Alliance and she's the first to help make sure that every girl can access safe, empowering education. And you can go to the website called withouthermione.org. And we're grateful to our friends at the HPA for all the work they do. Hear, hear. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on social media, leave us a review on iTunes, and send us a two-minute voicemail. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 2, The Scar, through the theme of destruction. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week's voicemail was from Katie Kelly Hankin. Our social media manager is Hashi Hetegay. We want to thank Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Stephanie Purcell, and the amazing transcript team. Big thanks to Alicia Vermeer, Brittany Howell, Oscar Caddo, Rebecca Dehovitz, Joshua Kelver, Laura Espinosa, Meredith Cooney, Lexi Giordulo, Krista Swartz, Tara Dioneff, Megan Steele, Tara Bates, Catherine Colborn, Myrie Nolan, Mary Manning, Bonnie Chi, Becky Liddell, Rebecca Ilchik, Kaylee C, Leah Pavlidis, Melissa Larson, Miriam Zaltzman, and Dave Jones for all their painstaking work to create these beautiful episode transcripts on our website. Especially the person who has to write this week's transcript with all of those names. <laughs> we want to thank you, especially. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs> Shall I not say Nagini's breasts? Shall I just say Nag- Nagini's teat? <laughs> Talking about milking her.
milk me. <laughs> <laughs> so upsetting. <laughs>